welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I'm delighted to introduce you to Aaron Quigley. Aaron is a professor and now head of School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of New South Wales in Australia. We talk about his various career moves that have brought him to the current role via a number of other countries and roles, uh, starting with Dublin, and the role of strategic hindsight and foresight around these decisions. We then have a wide-ranging conversation where he talks about things like the silent warriors, the people who do really great work with mentoring or supervision and service, but not necessarily getting public recognition. And he talks about his own three secret powers and how they play out in practice. And these powers are getting on and getting things done and not worrying about who gets the credit and the power of listening and the power of talking. And through the stories he tells around these, we also hear about his approach to leadership and getting the best out of people and making the world a better place. There are so many other topics I wanted to discuss with him more, but we did have a hard time limit. In particular, I know that he's a great LGBTQI plus role model, and he mentions his husband, Brad, often in our conversation. There's actually a really great video on his homepage uh, to an LGBTQI plus audience, that's a good complement to our conversation here. So enjoy it. Aaron Quigley, thank you very much for joining me. And I was trying to think about where we first met, and I think it was in Dublin at Pervasive Computing in, was it 2006? That's right. Goodness me. I, yeah, I have a terrible memory for the actual time when I first meet people, because once you get to know somebody quite well, it feels like they've sort of always been in your life. Mm. And also you get to know them a little bit better and you hear some of the backstory and then your own backstory and things overlap. And then you sort of think, oh, I've, Geraldine, we've always known each other. The yeah. uh, 15 years. There we go. There you go. And clearly with that accent, you're an Irishman. And I am indeed a proud Dubliner, proud Northsider. Um, you, you've got a, a strong computer science heritage, having done computer science at Trinity um, in the 90s. And then you moved to Australia for your PhD at Newcastle. And you've had a very peripatetic life uh, since then and lived in many different countries and worked in different roles. And you're back in Australia now. Uh, as head of department, which we will get to soon. Um, I'm really curious about all the moves and all the travels. Like what what were some of the motivations for shifting, for example, from Dublin to Newcastle for a PhD or? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I often think about this for myself. So I suppose probably two major things. Um, one, of course, anyone who's working in computing um, will understand that it's a global field. And the bits we have in Australia are quite similar to the bits we have in Ireland. And the pixels we have in Scotland are quite similar to the pixels we have in Japan. And, and as a result, you can move anywhere 
and apply your skills and talents so that it makes it a quite a an open and interesting world to move around in. Of course, I didn't end up in computer science. It wasn't my first choice, actually, wasn't interestingly it? enough. It was not. It was not my first choice. So uh, one of the reasons why I feel like I can move freely is uh, both my parents, actually, I'm sure I told you this before, both my parents passed away before I was at the end of my first year in college. Um, so my ties back to Ireland are to my extended family. Um, but it was actually my father who helped me become a computer scientist after my mother had passed away. Uh, because in Ireland, the way the point systems works is that you apply for your top 10 choices and you don't want to waste your points. And this was my, my sensibility at the time. And so I went to see my cousin, who was a solicitor and a lawyer, and asked him, would I be interested in doing the law? And he explained what was involved and explained that I would be tied to Ireland and my qualification would allow me to work maybe in Europe, but quite possibly. But again, you know, my mother had just passed away and I didn't want to waste my points. So I put down law as my first choice. And I cycled up to my school on the day my results came in. My principal, who'd seen my results, handed them over and said, not as good as you were expecting, Mr. Quigley, with a, a wry smirk on his face. And I, of course, mm. cried and cycled home. Yeah. And I handed over my results to my father and he said, oh, so you won't get into law, but that's okay. You can repeat. Your brother repeated. I'm like, that's fine. And he said, well, would, might you get your second choice? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll get my second choice. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, computer science. And he said, well, what was your third, fourth, fifth, seventh? Eight, ninth, tenth choice. I'm like, well, they're all computer science. And he said the thing that only mattered in all of life. He said, but of course, that's what you should do. That's the only thing you should do. You love computers. You've been spending your whole time. You're always on the computers. You're in the school helping with the computers. You're writing programs. Yourself and your brother are programming. Why would you want to do law anyway? You'll, always, you'll have to stay in Ireland for the rest of your life if you do law. Of course, you should do computer science. So in the end, I ended up in computer science in the best program in Ireland uh, and possibly one of the most uh, best classes I've ever experienced because I had such so many smarter people working with me and, and really pulling me up because you go from school where you're you think you're quite clever and you come into university terrified and you realize there's so many smarter people around you and what you need to do of course is learn from those um so i, I remember this quite vividly because just yesterday i was doing the orientation session here with all of our students in exactly the same situation i found myself after stumbling into computer science going oh maybe i should have done law and boy was my father right computers were for me yeah and it's it's so interesting that so you, the, the rest that's the rest of the rest of the moves i i, I could maybe i could maybe i could give the Sorry, I didn't really answer your question. Sorry, I realize now. You're like, all those moves. Oh, boy, that's complicated. Okay, so I'll try and be, I'll try and be brief. Okay, so once I was then in Ireland, um, through my first year in computer science, um, I, I got a job in, uh, working locally, but it, was, it wasn't a particularly great job. But then I was free in second year because after my father had died in first year to actually go to Germany. So I, got, I went to work in Germany and I enjoyed that with friends. Third year, I actually got a green card and I was able to go to the United States and work in, in the software industry. And that's when I actually nearly quit my undergraduate degree and basically nearly bought a boat in Marina del Rey and became a, 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 a COBOL programmer, but a, a TOLUS programmer. And I was going to give it all up until one person said, look, you know, you should have your degree because you'll always need to fall back on it. This VAX programming system you're now so good at and you're going to get $100,000 a year to work at, that might be gone. And that was gone in two years' time. So I went back to Ireland, did my honours degree, got offered a scholarship in Trinity to stay. But at that stage, my ties to Ireland were quite, you know, limited. And my supervisor said, look, you should, you know, 
explore possibilities, think about where you maybe want to go. And one of the things he suggested was go on the JET program to Japan. I didn't know much about it. As with many things, I applied. I, I went to the interview and they said, you know, what? And I very vividly remember saying this in the interview. They're like, well, what do you know about Japan? I'm like, not very much. They're like, well, do you know the Japanese language? And I'm like, no, not at all. But, well, why do you want to go to Japan? I said, it's a phenomenal opportunity. But you're not, you don't seem really prepared. I'm like, look, I want to get a first class honors degree at this moment. I'm focusing on that. I need to get that so I can get my scholarship. So that once I've done my time in Japan, I'll go and do that. And when I'm in Japan, I'll focus on that. I'll put my heart and soul into it and I'll do that. And that must have convinced them that maybe I was worth some, I was worth uh, taking a punt on. So I went to Japan for two years. I taught English. I learned about teaching people who don't really want to be taught, which was quite an, a learning experience. Then I went to Australia because there I called my supervisor. My supervisor called me and said, look, you have all these offers to go to um, uh, Oxford at the time, Cambridge, Manchester or coming here. Those supervisors did not do what my supervisor did, which said, why do you want to do a PhD? What will you do afterwards? What do, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think I'd like to do what you do. And he said, okay, in that case, pay attention to what I do. Learn from me. Not only do your PhD with me, but from day one, pay attention because you'll be doing what I'm doing. And I was like, I'm sold. I got on a plane. Well, I didn't get on a plane. I actually traveled all across uh, Southeast Asia for like 15 weeks to get here. Um, and I ended up in Newcastle one random morning. Did my time in Newcastle. But of course, the same thing. I show up. My supervisor is just like me, a slightly older version of me. And he's like, this is great. It's awesome that you're here. By the way, I'm going on sabbatical to Limerick in Ireland. Would you like to come? I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so he said, you have three choices. Stay here and I'll find somebody else. Number two, um, uh, get an internship. Number three, come with me to Limerick. Now, there's a whole reason why I didn't want to go to Limerick, um, but that we won't go into that. So I said, look, I'll find an internship. So I, I contacted a company in, in America. I still have my green card and I said, look, you should employ me. You're doing X. I could do Y. Together we can do Z. Um, I actually re read a great book called uh, What Colors Your Parachute. I gave it to one of my friends. I only read the first chapter, but you only need to read the first chapter of most of these books anyway, which is don't get a job, tell somebody why they should hire you for a job. They said no, but then they thought about it for a month and found some money and came back to me and said, well, actually, yeah, we will. So I went to work in semantic designs in Austin, Texas, and I'm still in touch with them to this day. Came back, actually ended up in Limerick for a little while uh, where I got a tattoo. So that tells you everything you need to know about time in Limerick. Um, I survived and uh, then went back to Australia where I became an associate lecturer in the university. City of Newcastle. This is oh, I'll try and, this is me being brief, by the way. Uh, met my well, actually, I'd already met my husband, and then we my now husband, and then we went to uh, stay there. So, and then of course, I was finished my PhD. I was on staff. I was trying to juggle that. My supervisor had gone moved again to Sydney, so I was I was going back and forward. In the in the PhD time, I would go down to the University of Sydney and sit in the room that he would give me underneath the toilets flushing above, which is a metaphor for some people doing a PhD. And then I would go back to the my lovely office in Newcastle, where I had a beautiful view of the bush, and students were coming to appreciate me and you know, time. But in you know, Monday, Wednesday to Friday, under the toilets, uh, Monday to Tuesday, um, you know, sort of being lauded. <laughs> and then I was thinking, like, this is definitely a metaphor for, like, you know, how I don't want to treat my students in the future. Interesting metaphor. Did my, did my studies. My husband went away to Japan to do his time in Japan. He came back. And then I had an opportunity to go to Mitsubishi Electric Research Labs in Boston. I did, arriving one week before 9-11. Um, I then uh, sat in my office and watched along with everybody else. Brad then joined me. He was actually on one of the first flights out of Australia. Uh, so he was very brave to come. We stayed in the mm -hmm. States for a while. Again, I had an offer to stay there. Even had an offer to actually go to Canada. <laughs> I turned down a 10-year track job to come back to Australia to do a postdoc because my my feeling was in life you can only be a postdoc at the time you've just finished your PhD and you can always get a faculty job you can always get like an assistant lectureship uh, you can always get become you know a professor somewhere in some you know top tier university that of course is not true um, so that was probably one thing that I was now if a student told me they have a postdoc versus a full-time tenure track in a top 20 university I'm not sure now given the state of the world I would make the same or given the same advice as I took for myself but I'd explain it worked out for me 
Well, didn't I was just going to say, powder. yeah, it didn't, as you will no. go on, it hasn't not worked out. No, no. But I mean, I still try and keep very good relationships. So always the time in life. Actually, now it's quite funny. Um, I actually ended up getting offered two jobs here in Sydney. <laughs> that was quite funny. Myself and Brad were traveling. Um, so I applied for all my jobs when we were backpacking through Patagonia. And I was like, bye-bye. I've got as, to go off to the internet do. cafe, for t- as you do. And I had to sit in an internet cafe for two days. So he's there like Patagonia all around us. Everyone's like hiking. And they're all like, dude, this is amazing. And here I'm like writing my resume, trying to explain why this research paper connects to this research paper. And I actually was editing my slides on in a cafe because I was like we were on our way to Paris to give a talk during in the in the middle of my PhD so my memory of Patagonia is a little different than most people's memory of Patagonia but we went back years later yeah I know it's like boo hoo hoo you know for you sitting in Patagonia editing your editing your um, resume in an internet cafe anyway then when we got to Europe we <laughs> I did my talk in Paris we went to London we saw family we traveled backpacking yada, yada, yada. we got to Venice and then they said like your interviews on Monday get back I'm like Okay, so Brad's first time in Europe. I'm like, I got to go. Uh, I'll see you back in Sydney. Um, uh, enjoy Vienna and the rest of Europe. So bye-bye. And then I abandoned him and ran back to Australia to do two interviews, one of, one of which was here in UNSW, which I didn't take. But the person who gave him the job now works for me. Um, but he was really good. So you, you have to be good to everybody because, you know, one time the person who you might employ one day might be your boss. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. Anyway, came back here for a while. This was good. But then a great opportunity came up in Ireland. Um, and actually, I went and applied and I said, look, who, are, who do you think is going to fill that job? It's either me or somebody like me. And if it's somebody like me, I want to collaborate with them. But I actually don't think there's anybody who has this set of skills. And that was 2004, 2005. Then I jumped over to Ireland, did that for a while. And then like myself and Patty Nixon, who I'm actually going to go visit tomorrow. So he was at the time, he was a professor in my research group. Then Patty basically moved up to be um, Deputy Vice Chancellor in the University of Tasmania research, and then he moved up to be the Vice Chancellor of the University of Ulster, and now he's the Vice Chancellor of the University of Canberra. So I'm going down with Brad to stay with him tomorrow. So again, people wow. you work with, they move around. Connections, you have to be, yeah. Be yep. Connections, but also just be good to everybody because you know, even today, like you go to Sig Chi, yeah. you go to all the Chi conferences, you meet all these PhD students. These are all the people. Like you know, you're just thinking like five years from now, you're yeah. you're running this group, you're setting this up, you're doing this. So it's yeah. not being nice to people. It's like you, obviously we want to be nice to each other, but it's like you get to influence and you get to kind of create connections and, mm. and meet people, and then thinking, well, if I could just help here and nudge people in certain ways, maybe then all the problems can be because as I saw later, like this, there's, there's not enough of us in HCI. We're tiny, and the problems are so many. Mm. Anyway, so five years in Ireland, that was awesome. Did that. Then I got an opportunity to come back to Australia, to Tasmania, which we did. But that uh, proposition, that was one of the big life lessons I learned, which is, you know, get the get the agreement for your lab set up, fine. But getting your own agreement set up, if you don't, if you make mistakes there, you're going to hinder that. So that didn't work out. So we did a quick swap and we went all the way from, and literally we shipped our whole life from Ireland to Tasmania, Tasmania, back to Scotland. That was not optimal by any stretch of the imagination. Right. 10 years in Scotland, fantastic. Never thought we'd leave until Brexit came along, until... <laughs> Um, other opportunities came along, yeah. and, which is just madness. And it's like, I yeah. don't want to be here. My, when my yeah. father lived in London, he always said, you never live in the UK. Uh, I had to go there. Uh, no cats, no dogs, no Irish. I'm like, no, 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 it's not like that anymore. And then it starts becoming slightly like that again. You're like, yeah, I don't want to be here anymore. Fantastic people there, amazing colleagues, but giving my heart and soul to somewhere that I think is just spitting in the face of Europe and spitting in the face of history and spitting in the face of one of the greatest implements that the world has ever seen for peace on a continent that has a very bad history of going to war with itself. It is disgraceful. So I said, I cannot work here in good conscience. I cannot stay in a country that spits 
nice of uh, instruments of peace like that. So I was like, we're leaving. And then the timing obviously worked out well or bad, depending on your definition of um, a global pandemic. Uh, we got back last uh, June. Uh, I'm back here now and I'm excited to be head of school helping uh, all my colleagues. And that's that's the thing about the head of school job. It's, you know, to help others to mm. achieve success. And mm. then together we work mm. to greater success. Yeah. So I've always had a reason for moving, but it it's been yeah. lots of jumping around. So it's, it's, I just think it's interesting because it doesn't sound like you had a strategic plan that you worked to. Um, it was a lot of it was responding to opportunities, but well, we being did. open it, we did to re- them. With regard to Australia, yeah, it's a combination. So there was always a long-term strategy to come back to Australia because Brad's okay. parents are getting older. So there was there's always been that's always been sitting there that there had to be an op- an interesting opportunity. Okay, that was like one. So there's sort of. The way I think about strategy is that there's two ways. There's strategy, there's strategic hindsight, and there's strategic foresight. Okay, so my strategic foresight activity is I imagine myself being in Australia for a period of my career. What do I have to do to build towards that? And what would I, what kind of job would I like to have in that particular role? Is it being ahead of school? Well, that's part of it, but there are other aspirations that I have in the longer, medium term. So I'm just coming to my 50s. I've probably got another 20 years. So I imagine other things that I might do in the future. Those are the kind of strategic foresighting type of activities nice i'm doing this a lot at the moment because i'm doing this in my school strategy Mm. and then there's a strategic hindsight and strategic hindsight are things like you know we lived in japan before so then when the opportunity came to do sabbaticals we decided well we we really want to target going to singapore we really want to target to go back to japan we really want to target to go here like all the times i've lived in the united states i've lived in boston i lived in texas i lived in california that in terms of strategic hindsight we've definitely got a plan that like after i'm head of school i'll have a period of um uh, research leave and that i want to go to the u.s i've never wanted to go to the u.s at the moment because often the my timing and their timing lines up between some autocratic idiot and me having a sabbatical or some you know, nightmare <laughs> yeah. situation and uh, me having a sabbatical. So, yeah, when I have research leave, there's certain universities that have certain places that I think I could get a, a lot out. I could learn a lot in the sabbatical. So that's the foresighting activities are where would I go to kind of round up my skill set? Um, I won't name any names, but there's three or four universities um, that I've targeted. And I, I've had these discussions with them and they've, we've lined up visits and we have funding arranged. Um, so there's, hi- there's hindsight activities and there's foresight activities. And it's a combination of the two. Hmm. So is part of hindsight activity also actually looking back and seeing that there was a red thread or that, you know, that you have been able to find ways to weave the different components, the relationships, the connections into some sort of sense-making, coherent story? And and recognising too what you said about being good to people because you're always reconnecting, aren't you, over the years in different ways? An example of just this, this is a surreal experience. I mean, it almost feels like when you see uh, people making a film or a documentary or some show and then something happens and you think, oh, that's unbelievable. That's not going to happen. That's that's unrealistic. Um, in the last two weeks, I joined Clubhouse, this new audio-based social networking system, which if people haven't tried it, it's worth, it, especially for someone in HCI, um, the, H- the HCI aspects of it, some of them are problematic. Some of the U- UX aspects are mm. quite problematic. I but heard of the idea of, you haven't heard of it? Mm. No? no? Oh, you'd like it. I'll, I can give you an invite. Let me know. On a, if you have an iPhone, that's the problem. That's one of its limitations. It's quite tied to iPhones. Anyway, so what was I doing? So I found there was a group talking about um, 
it was a Monday morning session, but it was Monday morning somewhere else. It wasn't Monday morning where I am. I don't know if you remember, we did our <laughs> we did our session last year, which was, you know, it's always breakfast somewhere. And it it's is. true. It's on it planet is. Earth. It's always breakfast somewhere. And you have to remember that. So these folks were getting together to talk about augmented reality, virtual reality, and they were having a breakfast session. It wasn't breakfast where I was, but I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I jump in. People start talking about it, literally like going to a, a seminar room or sort of a corridor in Kai, and you, you overhear people talking about something, and then they say something, and you have to listen. Okay, and uh, one thing I would say is I I have I have certain um, to me I think of them in terms of my like secret uh, my secret skills or my my super skills. I don't know how you describe it, um, and I have three that I would I can explain to you if you're interested. But anyway. Um, just sitting there and overhearing this conversation. Just you wait like 10 minutes and they're all explaining their interest in VR and AR, et cetera, et cetera. And then somebody says something like, you know, do you anybody have an example of something really terrifying in VR that they've experienced? And then the people on the panel, nobody really had a great answer. And then I, I put up my hand and they said, oh, we've got Aaron here. We'll invite him up on stage. I'm like, hi, I wasn't planning on, I was just planning on listening in. But I just want to let you know that last year I went to, I was on sabbatical in Tohoku in Japan and I met some students and they asked me, I, I was in the lab and I did a demo and they had a Frogger, but their version of Frogger, do you remember the game Frogger? Frogger. No, okay, Frogger I don't, I don't is, either. I don't know <laughs> no, I'm not yeah. a gamer. Oh. You're not a gamer. Well, I mean, this no. is like a, it's, a, it's a silly little game. But basically, in Frogger, there's cars going left and right, and you're a frog trying to get across the road. Uh, That's that the does principle. sound like fun. And you have to that go, sounds fun. Yeah, it's quite fun. You have to go forward, and then you have to go left, and you have to go right, and you try not to get squished by the car. That's the basic principle of Frogger. And what this student had done is he'd taken this, actually the team had taken this, and moved it into VR. You're like, okay, so, so far, so good. <laughs> but they've moved it into VR in 3D. So the way it works is you're on a girder, <laughs> and the girders are fl- sliding from left to right, and you have to then jump to the next girder and jump to the next girder. And the girders are slightly higher, so you're actually jumping up every single time. Every single time, jumping up, jumping up. You're, of course, you're not jumping up. You're just jumping in the same space. But in your mm. mind, the floor mm. is getting further away, and then the girders are moving faster, and they're going from left to right. And the way the whole, the whole system is set up and geared, you're jumping and jumping. And eventually, if you're good at the game, you're up like 10 stories on this girder that's going madly from left to right. And I, I literally fell over and crashed against a glass wall in the setup. And I was like, this was absolutely terrifying. And one of the other panelists was like, that's my system. I'm like, what do you mean that's your system? And he's like, there, it's me, Thomas. Remember me? I was the intern. I was working on that. I was the one who caught you when you smashed into the glass. <laughs> it's just, and it seems so fake. It seems so set up. Um, and everyone else says, oh, what a, look at these two, you know, uh, comedy troupe. You know, he comes in and he says this, and then it's his thing. And like, I just couldn't, be, but things on this interface, there's like the number of pixels that you could identify Thomas as was so small. I'm like, that really doesn't look like mm. you. And I'm not actually sure mm. I'd remember you from that picture. Yeah. But yeah. this is what happens. You know, you come back, your paths interconnect. Like yeah. it's all, you know, weaving the fabric together, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah. And it also sounds like um, mentors and advice has been really good. Like you've talked in multiple times about people, like either seeking out people and, you know, you seem to be very good at seeking out people and saying, what do you think, whether it's talking to you know, someone about the law or, you know, your previous supervisor yeah. and that. And uh, so I'm getting, I'm getting better at it. Yeah. But I think early on, I probably made some missteps um, thinking that it, it was a sign of weakness, not asking for help, not That's asking for advice Yeah. early on. So for example, when I was making the decision to leave Mitsubishi Electric Research Lab, so I had the, the choice of staying there, being offered a permanent job, going to the University of Victoria, 
getting a faculty tenure track position or going back to Sydney and getting one of two um, uh, postdocs. Now, so four choices. What do you, how do you decide? Did I talk to my former supervisor? No, he was busy and it didn't seem like he had the kind of the skill set. Did I talk to other people in the lab in Mitsubishi? I absolutely did. Did they have various advice? They, some of the people there themselves were going through kind of various forms of midlife crisis. So their advice was of kind of varying quality. Some people, and the, one of the best bosses I've ever had, Joe Marks in Mitsubishi Electric Research Labs, he gave some of the absolute best advice. And he is still somebody I would absolutely, if he had the time, of course, which he doesn't, yeah. I would still absolutely seek somebody like him out um, to give advice. Um, so I, I asked a few people. I didn't ask enough people. Um, and then by the time I got back to Australia, I had to make a quick decision between going to the University of Sydney to work with Bob Comerfeld and Judy Kay or to stay here with Fethi. Now, Fethi would have been great, but Fethi was part of something bigger. And I ended up meeting his boss's boss's boss, who was basically Satan. Um, and <laughs> I decided, no, I'm actually not going to work for you. Not because of you, but because you're employed by somebody who employs, is employed by Satan. So actually, I don't think I want to work for you. So no mm -hmm. offense. He's great. But this organization he was part of wasn't great. And then Bob and Judy were, were awesome to work with. And they're very, very supportive, very nurturing. Um, longer discussion about how you nurture postdocs and how much support you should give them and how much you should ask from them and how much you should give to them. And I think Bob and Judy are exemplary in terms of, you know, how they nurture the next generation. And their lab has produced like amazing people who are out there. They're, I'd say they're underappreciated uh, in terms of what they've actually done, yeah. both for computing in Australia, but yeah. also for the human computer interaction. You look at yeah. Judy, like, you know, in Ubicomp over here and UMAP over here and user modeling over here, you know, and yeah. Bob is contributing like in Pervasive over here and Ubicomp over here. So they're kind of silent warriors. So just mm -hmm. because they're not getting like sort of, you know, always, you know, at the top tier, there's a lot of people out there who are the kind of silent warriors who are doing work yeah. that actually makes the world yeah. a better place, but don't, yeah. they don't necessarily get the acclaim. And this is what really concerns me about our, what I see as our increasing push. I, I don't know whether it's just in our research area or, or in academia more generally to this notion of the, uh, you know, the superstars and, you know, mm -hmm. like awarding individuals and, not valuing and recognizing that it does take this village of people playing all sorts of yep. roles and not all of them are going to be high profile, high front roles. Yeah. So um, it's lovely that you draw attention to their really critically important contributions. Absolutely. I think, to be honest, running, uh, being general chair of CHI brings that into incredibly sharp focus. So yeah. there's actually there, there's several people in our community who are very mindful of this particular, um, just what you've said. So our, for example, our steering committee chair, uh, Reagan, um, last year when I had more time on my hands, I started doing some blog posts to try to explain some of the SIGCHI and ACM policies. There's like there's 50 or 60 of them. I, I kind of ran out of steam because, well, I got a new job and I have three and a half thousand students to look after. And life's um, too short for 60 policy life's too short. explanations. <laughs> Well, not, no, not necessarily because my new job, like head of school, like UNSW has about 120 mm. policies. And when you say that out loud, you see people's mm. eyes glaze over and they're like, yeah, I'm so glad you're head of school. Do. Nobody wants to know that. <laughs> Nobody wants to know that, but I need to know that. Well, I, I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to recite them, but I certainly want to know they exist so that when somebody says something, I go, oh, there's a handy policy for that. Because uh, otherwise you're making ad hoc yeah. decisions. Even like having the strategy document yeah. for the school is awesome because you know, now we're making investments and we have it. So policy, people think it's painful, but actually it's not necessarily painful. It actually codifies, you know, it's slow. It takes time. By the time you get there, it's not always great. I sound like a policy wonk now. Um, but but honestly, um, 
uh, I, I find it's it, it's actually quite useful sometimes to kind of have these things codified. So yeah, Reagan, yeah. for example, I, I started, I was going to start doing this. And she's like, oh, now be careful. You know, you're going to talk about, let's say, the courses policy. And I that was one of the first ones I was picking out. And and you well know the courses policy, Geraldine, of course. I, I do, <laughs> I do. You do indeed. There are so many people who have contributed to that particular policy. And I probably, I, in, my, in my blog post and in my video, I probably touched on a dozen people. Did I get everybody? Probably not, because it's gone so far back. Like Regina Bernhaupt, you, Stephen, uh, Scooter, uh, gosh, who else? All Max, the previous yeah, courses. Lots, yeah. Max. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, Max, of course. Like there's so many people who've touched on the courses policy. It's written up and people just go, well, you know, somebody just rewrote that. What's the big deal? You're like, simple things like the amount of money that's in there. Yeah. It's, like, it's like three digits, but those three digits encode like, weeks and huge amounts of thinking and articulation as to why do we do that? Like, why in why in CHI do course instructors get compensation, but technical program chairs don't, or panel chairs don't, or SIG chairs don't? And then we get an entire conversation about how this works. But we are where we are. It's codified in, at least it's written down. And then if people ask, we say, look, it's in a policy. It's not Aaron Quigley as general chair deciding to give you $200 and you not $200. And that's why it helps. That's why it helps. But I mean, yeah. I think Reagan wise wanted me to say, look, when you're talking about this, make sure you don't just go, hello, Here's my awesome courses policy, Aaron Quigley, you know, just came up with this one, you know, and tomorrow I've got another one. <laughs> I don't. Um, so maybe that's one of the reasons I ran out of steam on some of the other ones, because some of the other ones are just like a minefield. I, I was mm. remembering back to like when some of them were getting written, mm. like I was going to have a whole section on like Gary Marsden and my memory of it, but then other people have different memories of it. And actually, even now we've actually seen it's been rebuilt and I think the, the, the current EC is being quite good because they're, they're of a similar mind. Like when they rebuild things, they, they will say it and neha contacted me recently saying hey this is the post i'm like uh, you're missing people you're missing this person this person this person and again if anybody feels like they had their you know their contributions into it they should reach out on the on the other end of the spectrum of courses you know i read the document please add my name there's other people who want who want to claim false credit and that's what i i, I have a problem with that so i think it's we need to ju- we need to make sure that people are recognized but not allowing people to overclaim. Mm-hmm. um we could yeah. talk about people doing overclaiming on clubhouse yeah. and getting fired Okay. So there's you, another story in that. You've you've touched on lots of things that point to um what I see in you as a really strong, strong service ethic, because you have just mm. played an enormous number of service roles and often at sort of you know very sort of senior levels that have involved a huge amount of work. Uh, why do you do that? But lots of, but lots of small things. Well, lots of small things too. I mean, um, even now I do lots of small things that are invisible. Um, okay, so why? Why do I do that? Okay, so that's my secret, secret, secret power. That's not my secret power or my secret, secret power, but that's my secret, secret, secret power. My secret, secret, secret power. I feel, and that's one of the reasons why I want to be head of school is I think you can get a lot done in this world if you don't care who gets the credit. Now. Interestingly, nice. said that first in and of itself is a highly debated point. I always thought it was like not Edison or somebody, and it was some American president, I think, said it. But then other people were like, he didn't say it. It was actually said in a different language, like, you know, 20, 200 years before that and something. And then people get grumpy about the attribution of this. I actually discovered that myself. Um, I have a book over here. Um, gosh, where is it? I wrote a book chapter on ubiquitous computing, user interface for ubiquitous computing. Mm. And I, I put in the very famous quote. That's attributed attributed to Ford saying, if I asked my customers what they wanted, 
they yes. would have said a faster horse. Yes. Now, do you believe that to be true or false, Geraldine? Um, I think I believe it to be true, but you're going to tell me it's false. So <clears throat> this is a lesson for all students when you're writing a paper, okay? Um, you will often be writing the paper, you'll be putting in citations, you'll be adding things in, and then you'll be editing. And occasionally a citation will move somewhere else. Okay, so in this case, I said that, and actually I was quoting a book, another book that I'd read, and actually I quote in the same article, which said, it's, it's said that Henry Ford said this, and that's the thing I cited. And I think I, I thought I made that clear in my writing, not Henry Ford said this. Okay, fine. Paper books get published. Um, uh, John John Crum is the editor. Half a dozen of it, Shwetek Patel, Gregory Abaud. Lots of us are in there in different minds. All the user interface. I kind of cringe ever so slightly when I read it now, but I still think it's it's quite a, it's quite a good book chapter for students to read if they want to understand you interfaces, user interfaces for ubiquitous computing. Anyway, but then again, you know, somebody was doing an, an interrogation of this particular quote, and then they found my chapter, and, I, and they they saw that I'd cited the wrong thing. The next citation down was actually citing the, the, the correct thing in which it says, it's claimed that Henry Ford said this, okay? And of course, when they did their, like their thorough investigation of it, they were able to pull it apart and go, no, he's never said this. This has never been attributed. This is misattributed. Until, of course, then Henry Ford's great-grandson stood up and said, you know what? My grandfather said. <laughs> you're like, oh, no, what have you done? Like, it's never been written down. You heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody, and now you're rewriting history. And now, of course... Nobody has to quote. Yeah. It's like, you know, oh, his great-grandson said it's true. You're like, based on what? <laughs> so there's quite a lot of things like that in the world. So, yeah, I, I'm fairly confident Henry Ford never said it. But did he espouse the idea of it? Absolutely. His writings would suggest that. But, but never that little pithy statement probably never came out of his lips. Yeah. So you're going back to your secret secret thing, that, that thing about – That's my secret, so, sec my secret, secret power. Mm. Is, is sort of um, – you just want to see good things happen, great work yep. happen, and yep. I have uh, I have no ch I have no children of mm, my own. Mm. Um, all of the world's children are mine. All the students are the people who can go out and change the world. And when I'm dead, which won't be so long from now, if I keep working at the pace that I'm working, um, I, I kind of think that the people who I work with and the change that I can you know be the change, the things that I can help set up and nurture and support. Um, will uh, help make the world a better place in the long run. And yeah. trying to be the person who claims the credit for it yeah. is very dangerous yeah. because then it's like, oh, that's Aaron's idea. I'm like, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. That's yeah. our idea. That's your idea. Yeah. And I'm forgotten in that. That's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm surrounded by books about the history of this university and all the amazing yeah. things that happened. And like people's names are mentioned in there. Like, I don't want a statue, you know. I'm yeah. not doing this to get a statue no, on the lawn. It's, I'm doing yeah. this because I... It's the people... Uh, it's that influence on lots of people in in other ways you might never know actually and it doesn't matter so what are your other secret powers uh, so my second secret power um is these always kind of I, I i answer these ones back and forward um my second secret my not my secret power my secret secret power is listening now anybody who knows me would laugh at this point and going, no, that's definitely not a secret, secret power of yours. But actually, that's not true. Okay. I actually do feel that I can listen, but that's why, and how, but how do I listen? So I'll give you two examples. Clubhouse, great example. I spent, like, I go out exercising, you know, we go running. And um, when I go running, <laughs> oh boy, one of the runs I did, I did uh, Bondi to Kuji and Kuji back. And that's like, and then I took wow, the long Wow, that's a like long. Oh, it's, it's good. Oh, it's a good run, but like 16 kilometers. 
16 kilometers the other day. Anyway, and um, in it, I listened to three different clubhouses. And I, what I try to do now is I try and pick clubhouses, houses, rooms that are far away. The reason I do that is actually because of a discussion I had with Patrick Bowdish and then also Albrecht Schmidt, who sometimes go to conferences that are far away. So I look, look at what's on just this morning before I came to do this. There was a group talking about um, oceanographic research. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I'm cycling in, listening to this and in half an hour. And it's like, fantastic things. I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm talking to the Water Institute tomorrow <laughs> and then something else that somebody said is like oh that's very handy i'm talking to the provost next week and then like that other point over there i'm like and that was an australian who's like oh there's this new activity over here i'm like oh that's very interesting because that's going to plug into this new institute that i'm thinking of doing here because i mean I'm, you know how do you how do you learn these things like how do you know about yeah. war how do you know about like I, yeah. what's going on throw yourself in the ocean ha ha yeah. pun um sorry and i and that's one yeah. So the the one the fun one I did was a, like a 60 minute run where I listened to all of these music executives in North America who were talking about how they were supporting their artists to get started. And it was a heavy, heavy preponderance. And I was able to go through people's profiles and see their their backgrounds. So there's lots of people from uh, like lots of African-Americans in there, um, lots of people from like other minorities, lots of people who were kind of, you know, early career, late career. They're just talking together. I basically stepped into a room that I would not be able to step into in normal conversation because I would feel uncomfortable because I don't know anything about these people. They don't know anything about me, but they're sitting there having a conversation. Yeah. And I'm learning. I'm learning language. I'm learning about like, you know, values. I'm learning about the principles. I'm learning about how they set up their mentoring networks and how they kind of, you know, understand trust and relationships. I understand about there. Some of them were saying, oh, oh, hey, I've got this like sample. Listen to listen to what I'm working on right now. And they're playing the thing that they're about to release with an, an artist. They're helping nurture. And you're listening to this music and they, they're talking about, yeah, we didn't like this bit and we had to change this. And then somebody else is over here saying, well, actually, we've got this other sampling tool. Like it's just a world in which I can't step into because I have no skills, no background, no knowledge, no nothing to contribute. And mm. if I stepped into the room, they'd be like, like you know, the imposter syndrome. <laughs> if you step, I stepped into that room, that's like, you know, hello, I'm an imposter. But they welcome me in. Like they let me stand there and listen in. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Of wow. course, by the by, they start admitting to all kinds of crimes. You're like, uh, uh, okay. Don't, uh, uh, <laughs> don't want to be listening amazing, to this. Amazing. So listening so, is, my second, yeah. is my secret secret power. I mean, I, what what I hear there is 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 almost sort of like you have antenna that are out, yeah. looking for it, tuning ideas. into different channels yeah. and looking for different ideas yeah. and being able to make the connections. Because it's one thing listening, and what you're doing is sort of also making the connections and seeing what can be relevant, done or useful. Well, one when when I came here, um, I wanted to meet with every single academic. You know, I'm new. They don't know me. Some of them know me vaguely, but not really. And, you know, we're all doing our own things. It's kind of very hard to, you're busy working on your own research. You've got your own interests and priorities. And I'm in HCI. Probably five or six people here vaguely know or vaguely interested in HCI. So 50 people are all working on all kinds of other aspects of computing. People doing theoretical aspects, cybersecurity, operating systems, programming languages, hardware, networking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like all the, all the, some of the, some of the most impressive work I've actually seen, really, really some incredible stuff going on here. Um, so when I was talking to them, I actually used a tool. Um, I used a video conferencing system, which most video conferencing systems don't have, uh, which basically keeps track of how much am I talking and how much are you talking? And my goal was to only talk for 20% of the time. And for Very me, good. Who, oh, it was really handy. Oh, because it was on screen the whole time. Because I mean, some people are just not, 
loquacious. Some people have to be drawn and you have to figure out like, so, okay, hello. Okay. What, what do you like? And I, I, I said up front, like these aren't, you know, complaining about the department sessions because that's not going to help anybody. And these are like, what's your passion? What drives you? Okay. Listen, listen, listen. Some people, you know, so I have to say, okay, well, tell me about your last paper. Okay. Whatever. Tell me about your last student. Tell me about your last course. And I had to kind of, I had to kind of fish around until I hit something, which is like, well, tell me about your last, you know, research challenge and then suddenly it's like a fire ignites and you just see the flames and you can't you can see it sometimes you can hear it often and then we're off to the races and then suddenly somebody goes oh you're talking about something that nobody's ever asked me about nobody cares about that because i don't think anybody realizes that's going to be relevant until 200 years from now like oh you mean like the mathematicians who did all the work you know hundreds of years ago that now allow us to have cryptography today that kind of stuff yeah i'm interested in that let me know why why do you think that matters and off we go so the way i describe it here is that the people in my school either do world leading <clears throat> world beating or world building and as long as you convince me you're doing one of those three things i'll have your back that's all you need world leading world beating world building i don't mind what it is one of those three then you need friends Sometimes cryptography takes hundreds of years. I'm fine with investing in it. Investing in something that you think is just a toy project or an amusement, or you actually know somebody else is doing better work and you just don't care, but it's the thing that you know how to do. No, that's not going to be a good idea. No, world leading, world beating, world building. One of the three, whatever you're, what, pick your, pick your, pick your poison and then work in that way. Uh, I think and the most, many, many people are, not everybody, but mm. obviously we'll, we'll encourage mm. people to work in that way. Yeah. And I was just going to say that seems to be like also part of your secret powers is in in uh, not needing to take the credit but wanting to see this yep. sort of work done. How do you you, you know oh, yeah. how do you put your antenna out to recognize it and mm -hmm. then enable it? Um, yeah. And. That, 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 so that's hard, that listening one, that was, that was exhausting, listening to 55 people, and it took so much time. It was actually, I thought, oh, this is a, this is a strategically, this is a clever thing to do. But boy, once my actual deadline for starting the job started rolling around, 10th of August, and you know, the, the handbook, you know, the, the 400 page handbook they give you as head of school with all the detailed instructions so that anytime a problem shows up, you can just flip yeah. to page 72 and then the, the recipe is there. They gave me the book and I opened it up and it was a blank sheet of papers. I'm like, uh oh, what do you mean? What? No, 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 no. And like, honestly, there is no handbook because every head <laughs> yes. of school's role is yes. different. The yeah. handbook is start building, start thinking, mm. start looking, mm. start documenting, start understanding, start meeting. Mm. So by me actually meeting everybody, I understand what people's kind of passions are, where they can kind of work together. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it's like, I write my own book, um, yeah. metaphorically and physically speaking. Yeah. And then I basically synthesize what I've heard from my colleagues plus my six months into the school strategy, which I'm yeah. recording a video on later to give to yeah. my colleagues so they can nice. digest. Because the next thing, of course, is present, listen. And it's not just for my colleagues, it's the three and a half thousand, four thousand students. They have something to say as well. Like I'm listing out that these are the imperatives for the department going forward for the next five years. Not just asking the staff, I'm asking the current students, the future students, mm. the alumni, mm. our international relations committee, our advisory board. I'm going down to Canberra to meet one of our um, one of our benefactors who actually spent a lot of time, you know, supporting the school. Because there's some amazing history here. Um, for people who don't know, like John Lyons, you should look at the life of John Lyons. He would be an inspiration to any academic, I have to say. Any academic, if he was alive today, and I'm actually meeting his wife next in a couple of weeks' time, she's going to come visit us and, and visit the John Lyons garden and see the tree. And I'm going to take her around and show us what the school is like. His life would be an inspiration to any academic. To have the influence John has on the world, but again, understated, 
not necessarily like, you know, at the forefront, not the person who's standing up, you know, being yeah. lauded for the work that they're done. Yeah. Slow and steady, educate the generation, make an influence. They go and make an influence, they go and make an influence, they go and make an influence. And then out you go. So we're actually having the inaugural John Lyons Distinguished Lecture Series here on the 27th of May. And my colleague, uh, Gernot Heiser, is about to announce this to announce the makeup of it. And he has, he has arranged an incredible lineup. Um, Turing Award winners, and they can they can see the value of coming to talk about the work that John did because they can see a line and how they connect. Like it's not a straight line, but they can see how the influence is. Like ACM fellows, mm. people have invented various operating systems. John's contribution to knowledge around open source. He was one of the progenitors of that within Australia. So his influence lives on in the open source community, lives on in the operating systems community. And you have all of these second, third, fourth generation people. We have people from Google. We have people from Microsoft. We've got people from Princeton. We've got people from Europe. We've got people locally. And people like uh, Gernot, who's our John Lyons chair, going to be talking at this event. And uh, Gernot's currently in quarantine, and he's currently, um, hopefully, if he's listening, um, he's currently writing the email to the uh, advisory board of the, com the committee to say, look, this is what we're doing. We're excited, looking forward to your feedback. They give feedback, we then tell the staff, then we, then we hear feedback from the staff, then we tell the students. Once we've done that, then the tickets go live. So anybody in the world who wants to come along and hear about the life of an academic and how it influenced an entire generation of operating system research, please come along on the 27th of May. And we're on Zoom, so Great. So we'll definitely include that link on the web page for people. Yeah, when it's when it's available. Just uh, your other any of your other secret powers, because it seems like my secret power, my secret okay. power. So is so you've got talking. a secret, 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 a secret, secret, and a secret. A secret. And now this you'll laugh at. My secret power is talking. Yes. Because you think. Uh, that's not a secret. You're always talking. Okay. No, but what I mean by my secret power is how I'm talking. Okay. So what does that mean? I talk differently to different people. We all think we do that, but actually you have to be kind of, you have to think carefully about what you're actually doing. And sometimes I make a mistake and I talk to people in a different way. And that's where I, I make mistakes. And I still make mistakes all the time, not on a daily basis, but you know, regularly enough getting, that getting I'm reminded of getting better exactly we're all getting better by the time i'm really really good at this is right about two 20 minutes before i die so yeah it's a constant state of progress <laughs> it, is, it is a constant state of getting oh, better absolutely yep. and you go backwards sometimes you know you're yep. stressed whatever anyway so mm. talking so when did i learn this so i was an english language teacher in japan so i had to speak to the uh, yochen which were basically the, the school children who had not even begun to study english and were thinking about studying English and were scared. And I was this big, uh, tall, uh, white dude coming in, uh, trying to excite them about English. Then I had to talk to my actual incoming junior high school students about English. Then I had to talk to the high school students in English. Then I had to talk to people who'd gone through that education system and were now living in my rural community who still knew a little bit of English. Then I had to talk to my colleagues who maybe spoke English or Japanese. And then I had to older people. And I was in uh, what's called yakimono. Yakimono is making Japanese pottery. And I was in a yakimono class with all the octogenarians. Um, and I had to learn how to speak to those people. Okay. And they had to learn how to speak to me. And they spoke to me as if I was a child. So that's when I really mm. saw it. And I'll give you an example of this. There I was, the class, the instructor's making it. He comes up and explains to me, and I'm making my little teacup 
very proud of this, making my little teacup, taking me like two hours to make this little teacup. And I hold up my little teacup. I'm like, that's not so bad. Actually, look, that would hold water. And when they, you know, dip it in the, the stuff and they fire it, I'll actually be very proud of that. I had it for years until my husband threw it away. Very cruel on me. But anyway, I'm not bitter. Um, and I loved it. Just this still is awesome. together. I'm still, we are still, we're still love, love, you know, he, he's only three. What is yeah, anyway, that's the only thing he's thrown away. My, this is the terrible thing. I made a cladder ring, which is a beautiful Irish yes. shape. I made a yes. cladder ring for my next door neighbor. Okay. I gave it to her when I was leaving. Actually, I gave it to her son who was six when I was leaving. And then 20 years later, um, I get this random email from somebody saying, oh, here, you're coming to visit and da, da, da. We'd love to meet up with you. And of course, I wasn't connecting the names. And then she came back and said, would you like this back? And I'm like, oh, boy, oh, yoy. And then I'm like looking to my husband, like the next door neighbor hung on to this and it's rubbish. <laughs> you threw away my mug. What's wrong with you? And he's like, yeah, but she wants to give it back to you. I'm like, no, 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 no. She doesn't want to give it back to me. She wants to, she's kept it. I'm like, she's like, oh no, you could please take it. I'm like, no, 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 you must keep this. If you kept it this long, it must be a fond memory of like, hey, look at the neighbor, look at the crap he made. Anyway, so I, but the thing is with the electricianarians, I made my cup. I was really proud, but I was head down, focused on my thing. I thought this is pretty good. I'm doing it. They're all coming over going, oh, Josu, very good. And like, you teach my uh, granddaughter she says you're a very good teacher I'm like, oh thank you very much it's very good thank you and like oh well, you know my 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 niece or my great my great granddaughter she knows that you like uh, okonomiyaki because she works in the shop where you buy the powder and she like she knows that you like this ingredient and this ingredient but not this ingredient and you should try this ingredient i'm like that's good to know that everyone's talking about my okonomiyaki making skills what else are you talking about and this is the town in which my underpants were stolen from the line so anyway that's, that's another story <laughs> Um, and then I look up and I look up and I'm like, look at me, I've made my teacup. And I look around and everybody else has made these incredible vases in the same amount of time as which I made my teacup. These beautiful vases that look like a penguin with a little hole. So when they fire it, you can put in a single flower mm. and have a beautiful piece of ikibana. Mm. And they're coming up to me and complimenting my crap teacup. And they've just made something that could be in a museum. And I'm like, uh, you have to know how to talk to your audience. Yeah. You have to encourage people, even if they've got the tiniest bit of skill, but they're trying. You've got to listen. You've got to look. And you've got to talk to them, on not on their level, but in their way that will keep them encouraged, even though they're making a crappy teacup that one mm. day their husband will throw yeah. away and be bitter about for the next 20 years. And, and that requires a whole focus and attention on the other person, not on you, which yep. is a very yep. different mindset. And in talking, what I'm also hearing is um, that a very good storytelling skills that bring ideas to life in, in talking to an audience and also an ability to distill things into uh, phrases like like the, the sort of world-beating, world-leading, world-buildings, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like just capturing the essence of things, uh, which I think is great. Yeah. It, it doesn't always work. I mean, I, mm. I, I misstep from time to time. Um, and I don't want people like, who are hearing this thinking like, oh, he's always strategizing how to, uh, you know, overthinking and he's not being mm. genuine. It's like, it's not that. It's just that I, my experience is if you, if you don't do a little bit of thought about the other people, that you end up spending so much more time trying to unwrap you know, I didn't mean it that way. Like, oh, ha, ha, ha. I was just yeah. joking. I was trying yeah. to be kidding. Yeah. If you don't try and put yourself in the other people's shoes, it'll end up being, it'll make, yeah. it'll damage the relationship. Yeah. It'll damage your thinking. And they'll think less of you. And you're like, I'm not that person. I actually do yeah. value your input. I do want to listen. I, I'm trying to build 
you know, a way of, of learning and listening. Um, do I make it, do I get wrong? Absolutely. You know, could, could I do it better? Mm. You know, for sure. Always it's learning experience. But when yeah. you hit, when you, when you hit upon certain strategies, you're like, oh, that mm. can work and that can scale. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to it, you know, listening to a million voices. How do you listen to a million voices? And um, you remember, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Bruce Almighty, he gets the power of God and then he, he can hear everyone's prayers and suddenly mm. he's just drowning in a billion voices. And you're like, you can't listen to a billion voices. Mm. So what do you do? Well, you create trains, chains of trust. Mm. You create structures where mm. you, you listen to some people. You can selectively dip in and out. You, you jump up mm. and down. You find opportunities to meet people. You know, the first years yesterday, listening to them. trying. We tr I tried the uh, ice-breaking game, which I learned at Kai. I don't know if you've ever played it. Uh, the two truths and one lie. Have you played this, Geraldine? Yes, yes. Okay. Would you like to play it now with me? You know me really, really well. And I bet, you st I bet you'll still, maybe I don't bet it that you'll get it wrong. Can, can we play it quickly? We've only got a minute yeah, or go. two. I know. Right? So I'm just looking at the time. Yes. Okay. So my three, three truths and one lie. Now, the first thing is I got my students yesterday to do this without speaking, importantly. So my niece, um, anyway, I'll come back to that, how we, how we did that. But yeah, we were, we were doing it. So my three, three truths and one lie. Number one, I sang with Madonna. Number two, my brother sang with Abba. Number three, my niece sang for the Pope. So which is my lie, Geraldine? One, two of those are true. Now, so I want to say that the, the Pope is true. I'd say because of the Irish connection, which is a stereotype. With, well, I know. Everyone sang sung for the that. Pope. Is that you're feeling like the entire country <laughs> no, sings no. for the Pope? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, That's the, that, that, uh, I Madonna's true. Why, Madonna. why is Madonna true? Because I'm gay, so every gay no, man has I'd sung say, with Madonna. Is that what you're thinking? I would say uh, Madonna isn't true. I, Madonna's not true. So you believe my niece sang for the Pope, and you believe my brother sang with Abba, and you don't think I sang with Madonna. Is that what you're no, saying? That's what I'm saying. And I don't know why. <laughs> the only, final, the only final answer. Final answer. <laughs> final answer. Because I don't so you're going, you're going with Madonna. Yeah. Absolutely not. You are wrong, I'm afraid. I, I have sung be. with Madonna and I will send you the photo later um, by funny. some definition of sing. And but I mean uh, here, like a meter and a half away, singing together. Not, you know, she's on Ooh. stage half a mile away, and I'm. Yeah. Oh no, no, me. We're besties. Well, actually, I don't think we are besties because once she actually put the microphone up and allowed me to sing with her, she realized I didn't know the words, and my husband, who was standing beside me, did know the words, and was has, has been disgusted by this for like forever. Because anyway, and my brother did sing with Abba, and actually, my niece didn't sing for the Pope. She ah. signed for the Pope. She was on the choir on stage right. a few years ago, and she was one of the, the children who was signing ah. because she signs. So she signs. So if you ever get the chance to type in Pope Ireland signing choir, it is an emotional roller coaster. If you've never seen wow. uh, a signing choir, it is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. There's some children are singing, some children are signing. There's an artist performing. The Pope, he's not on screen. Who cares? Um, it's that experience mm. of watching like an entire stadium and then zooming in on people signing. Mm. It's yeah, it's, it, it brings tears to my eyes just Lovely. thinking of it. Lovely. Mm. So you you do have a, a hard time and that we need to finish up. There are so many things that I do want to discuss. Like I sure. wanted to pick up on the, the supervision and, you know, like some of the tips and tricks <laughs> and all sorts of things. But we'll have to leave all that for another time. And 
many other topics as well. But uh, is there anything just in closing that you want to add, say? Um, um, what would I say? Gosh, um, I really appreciate that you do these kind of um, podcasts, I have to say, because uh, I, again, before Clubhouse came along, all I would do would be listening to podcasts. I would discover various podcasts and I would run along listening to them. Um, one that people have never heard is, uh, which is actually inspired. Uh, so many years ago, uh, the ACM president, uh, Vicky Hansen, asked me to help set up something for the next generation of computing. So myself and my colleague, uh, we invented the ACM Future of Computing Academy. Trademark Aaron Quigley. I need the credit for that. No, <laughs> okay. Um, no. And uh, based on the Royal Society of Edinburgh's Young Academy, et cetera, et cetera, there are many, many things to everyone. We build on the shoulders of giants. Anyway, the FCA got set up. And one of the things the FCA did was a podcast series. Now, they ended up ending that. But now the practitioner board and the ACM have created something called Bikecast. And that's quite an impressive um, event. Now, when I see that, I see the, the DNA of the Future Computing Academy members all over it. Um, and when I think of that, I think of all the work that Vicky Hansen uh, did to help create that and her her influences from the assets and the Sikai yeah. community because yeah. everything has many many you know success yes. has many parents you know yes um, and that's so what I would say is like think about those um, types of activities like Bytecast is an awesome one to listen into find interesting podcasts to actually educate yourself see if you can get on something like clubhouse before it becomes a toxic hellhole like all social networks <laughs> become after about you know once they reach about 10 million they become unusable um but i think twitter is trying to build one facebook is trying to use one so it'll really be a toxic hellhole by the time actually facebook has built it mm. uh, but just listening and just uh, learning just the listening the listening is awesome yeah. if you have to exercise yeah. what can you do like you can't do anything else just listen into yeah. other people talking yeah. and, and actually when you're listening oh big key key rule listen don't wait to talk Go on to Clubhouse, 50, 60% of people have their hands up. I want to talk. I want to talk. I want to talk. They're like, listen, you don't really have anything to say. Like there's 12 people up on stage. We've only got an hour. They've probably only got five minutes each. There's enough of them up there. Let them talk. Just listen. They've all these people got their hands up waiting to talk. If you're listening, if you're in a meeting and you're waiting to talk, you're not listening. So exactly. listen, don't wait to talk. Exactly. Lovely, lovely uh, note to end on. Thank you very much for your time Aaron this has been <laughs> really instructive so even though we've me. known each other for so long you just have different sorts of conversations with people than you than you normally do you don't know me great. at all you can't no. see you can't see me on stage with Madonna how dare you <laughs> you know I I dressed I'm up as sorry. a beaver I dressed up in my kilt I I you know I dressed up in a kilt to give you a gift on stage and you can't see me on stage with Madonna I actually I'm gonna I'm gonna my, I've got other secret things I can tell so I'm not gonna spoil them because I need my I need to keep my other secret things and my other <laughs> talents you can that'll be the topic for another day another beer. indeed thanks thanks very much bye-bye you can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.